You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Marino had also investigated more conceptual aspects of the dolphin mind. In 2000, she and another scientist, Diana Reese, conducted one of the most acclaimed dolphin experiments of all time. Its premise was deceptively simple, a test to see if a bottlenose could recognize himself in a mirror. Most animals couldn't. They ignored the mirror or treated it as if it were another animal, approaching it tentatively or aggressively. To make the test more definitive, the subject's bodies were marked in a conspicuous spot. For instance, if a chimp who was daubed with a pink stripe down his cheek leaned in to touch his mark and examine it in the mirror, he was said to have passed the test. He understood that the chimp with the odd tattoo was himself. When Marino and Reese first proposed to try this with dolphins, only humans and our fellow great apes, chimpanzees, orangutans, and gorillas, had demonstrated self-awareness. So it was front-page science news when Marino and Reese's two bottlenoses, Presley and Tab, became the first non-primates to do this, mugging in front of the mirror, craning their bodies around, and flipping upside down to examine their marks. Since then, elephants and magpies have also passed the test. Though it might seem like no big deal, to conceive of your own identity is a rare cognitive feat. The idea of a self is a pretty far-out abstraction, and to get that I am me and you are you, and that we both have autonomy but there's also a relationship between us, this capacity was long considered unique to our own two-legged, opposable-thumbed species. It's not an ability that can be taken for granted. Children don't begin to develop self-awareness until they're nearly two years old, along with feelings like sympathy and empathy. To know that dolphins operate in the same realms of consciousness we do raises a raft of fascinating questions about their interior lives and, in turn, the ethics of how we treat them. What Reese and Marino accomplished, really, was to prove what John Lilly had only been able to guess, that the dolphin in the tank is not a what, but a who. Susan Casey is the author of The Devil's Teeth, a true story of obsession and survival among America's great white sharks and The Wave, in pursuit of the rogues, freaks, and giants of the ocean. Her new book is Voices in the Ocean, a journey into the wild and haunting world of dolphins. Thank you for joining me, Susan. My pleasure. This book begins with an experience that you had a moment of healing transformation where you encountered dolphins really in the wild for the first time. What brought you there and what happened? It was off the coast of Maui, and uh, it was an interesting time in my life because I was deeply grief-stricken and was depressed and morose and couldn't see a lot of sunshine in life and hadn't for quite some time after my father had died of a sudden heart attack. And he was really the fulcrum of my life. Uh, I would go off and have adventures and do crazy things reporting my books. And I feel like he was always the reason I could do that. He was just always there until one day he wasn't. So I was really struggling with this. And even though I lived in New York, I would go to Hawaii often. Uh, It's where I wrote The Wave. And I just found solace there. On one particular night, and this is the episode that starts the book, I 
went across the island to swim in this one particular bay. Uh, and it was kind of uh, nice where I was. But when I got to the other side of the island, it was gray and cloudy and sort of surly and choppy. And nobody was around. It was windy. And I looked out and I wondered if if it, I should go swimming because there had been this rash of shark attacks, tiger shark bites, uh, a whole bunch of them on Maui. And people were staying out of the water. But I didn't really care about anything. I just wanted to get in the water. And uh, so I got in and I was swimming by myself quite far offshore, which wasn't unusual because I'm a competitive open water swimmer, but sort of ill-advised under these conditions. And uh, I wouldn't say I was terrified because I was more numb than anything, but I was certainly discomforted when I saw a very large gray animal below me with a big dorsal fin. And as I looked closer, I saw that it was a it was a dolphin. It was a spinner dolphin. And that, in fact, there were about 30 or 40 spinner dolphins just completely surrounding me. Um, and it was, interestingly enough, my first up-close and personal encounter with wild dolphins. And I say interestingly because I've met up with almost everything else you can meet up with in the ocean. I've spent time around white sharks and all kinds of large creatures. But Weirdly enough, I just hadn't, I hadn't actually had an opportunity to swim with dolphins. So we swam around for about 15 minutes, and it was, it was fascinating because there's something so different about them, and I had never quite realized just how much so. And when I swam back to shore after they left, and I sort of watched their bodies fade into the ocean, I really felt sort of high. And I also noticed with total surprise that it was almost the first time that I had forgot that I was sad. And that feeling did not go away. And so the question that I set out to answer after that and became Voices in the Ocean was why would a 10-minute encounter in the ocean with these animals have such a profound impact on me emotionally? It even felt like physically. It was it was unusual. It really got my attention. Well, I think one of the things that is interesting is the way you describe this. It's almost a, a mystical experience. I have a lot of experiences in the ocean that feel like that to me. But this was one in which there was another creature there, mm-hmm. um, which was, it. I, I have to say, I've had many profound experiences in the ocean. But this one, because of the dolphins and their presence and the the sort of, This notion, I always, the reason I write about the ocean all the time is because I'm fascinated by the idea that there is a parallel universe on this planet, and in fact, it's most of this planet, that we don't know that much about, and we almost never get to see. And so this idea that there was um, a sort of a parallel society or culture below of beings that had the same awareness of themselves and some sort of sentient relationship to us that was the first time I really got that, and that just blew my imagination wide open. Now, once you had this experience, you wanted to find out more about dolphins, and you ended up in a place called Dolphinville. What a great name. <laughs> Where is Dolphinville, and how did it come to get that name? Uh, well, yeah, when you start Googling dolphins, you will find all kinds of stuff. Um, and I quickly found out about Dolphinville, which is on the Kona coast of the Big Island, Hawaii, And it's more a state of mind than an actual village, but it is a group of about 200 people who are all friends. 
they spend hours swimming in the ocean with the wild spinner dolphins that live along the Kona coast. There's quite a few spinner dolphins that come into the bays during the day when they're resting. And they meditate together, and they believe that they have been called there by the dolphins. So it's a very New Age-centric group. Um, Their beliefs range from everything from the sort of reasonably mainstream, which is dolphins are highly intelligent, highly evolved creatures, sentient creatures, to the really kooky stuff like dolphins' sonar activates uh, rem- remnant DNA in our bodies so that we can receive encoded messages from other galaxies. And I found that really fascinating because what is it about dolphins that has attracted this type? I mean, they're they're fascinating enough as just plain old wild animals. Like, do they really also need to have superpowers from space? Or <laughs> yet yeah, you see that all over the place. Um, there's there is this widespread belief that dolphins have all this mystical ability that they. Some of the people in Dolphinville believe they actually have come from other planets to save us and guide us. So I really wanted to look closely at the New Age movement to find out why dolphins played such a key role in their belief system. You know, you mentioned the spinner dolphins. Uh, These are not the flippers (laughs) that we normally see. And at the beginning of the book, you discuss the different kinds of uh, dolphins and whales that you're going to discuss in the book. So what... Are the different kinds of dolphins and where do they live? And you also include uh, some really interesting critters, uh, melon-headed whales, false killer whales. How do all these uh, species sort out? Well, they're all dolphins, and dolphins are toothed whales. So Mm -hmm. the dolphin taxonomy is kind of confusing and a little bit fluid. Um, I actually put a note in the front of the book to explain. First of all, the whales are toothed. And then baleen whales, those are the two branches of whales. So dolphins fall within the the toothed whale um, family. The sperm whales, the great sperm whales, are not dolphins, but they are also toothed whales. But there's a whole branch of toothed whales that are the oceanic dolphins. There are about 37 species of oceanic dolphins, and they range from tiny little Hector's dolphins, which are about three feet long, all the way up to killer whales, or orcas, false killer whales. melon-headed whales, pilot whales, those are the fish collectively known, uh, uh, excuse me, the dolphins collectively known as blackfish. They're all dolphins. The word whale in the dolphin family, if you say pilot whale or killer whale, it doesn't mean anything other than size. This is a large dolphin. It's not a scientific designation of any kind. Mm -hmm. It's a word that has a little bit of um, flexibility to it. Uh, And then there are five species of river dolphins, Freshwater dolphins, which are also, of course, under the toothed whale family, but a different branch of it. Now, uh, these uh, the people, the residents of Dolphinville are the members of, of this collective. And it's interesting that you refer to it, I guess, as a collective because that's how, how dolphins congregate. And that's, I think, one of their most interesting aspects. So uh, when you went there and talked to them, do they have a, a leader or... The, the woman that this is sort of congregated around is a woman named Joan Ocean, who's a real New Age dolphin guru. Is that her real name? <laughs> it's not her real name, but interestingly enough, she chose that name for herself before she ever encountered dolphins and before she ever knew how to swim. She just, really? Yeah, she didn't even learn to swim till she was 45. Joan is a great-grandmother now. She's about 75 years old, and she looks about 45. She's bizarrely ageless. Her eyes are 
this sort of lasery aquamarine color. And uh, as I wrote in the book, I, I can't imagine anybody possibly building a more dolphin-centric life than Joan. And she was um, instrumental in gathering all these people together. And, you know, they, uh, they so I, I said in the book, if this is some kind of wacky cult, it's the first wacky cult I've ever heard of that requires three and four hour open ocean swims every day. You know, so <laughs> that that's not not an easy task. No, the society of these people is really interesting, and their the the range of their beliefs. When you were talking to them, I mean, what do they do for food? <laughs> oh, I mean, <laughs> you know, these are professional people. Uh-huh. I mean, I went the first time I ever got went to a gathering of them. I looked around and I was like, "Here's a dive master. There's an underwater photographer. Like, I they there there's just this this sort of lovely new age." group that hangs out together with dolphins and on the far fringes of the group they have some pretty wild beliefs about uh things that you know trippy things about dolphins mm-hmm. and they're by the way not alone in that there's uh I went to a seminar uh that Joan Ocean put on called dolphins time travel and teleportation because I wanted to see why the words dolphins, time travel, and teleportation would be in one sentence. Like, what are they doing there? What do dolphins have to do? What, I mean, so there, you know, there's a there's a range of beliefs, some of which you sure can't find any argument about, like, which is these are animals that make us happy to be around. And they somehow manage to exude these loving feelings towards us, even as we make their lives quite miserable mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you can go all the way up to the fringes, which is that dolphins came from the star Sirius or something like that. With the Dogon people. Yeah, exactly. The... And there's a lot of there's a lot of myth and lore and mysterious conjecture about dolphins. And I wanted to examine that as well as the real nitty gritty, rigorous, state of the art science about dolphins. Now, at one point, I, I think you describe uh, feeling the sonar of a dolphin. That's really interesting. Uh, how did that happen? We, the, you can feel it when there are, there are several of them around you, and you can hear it, too. Mm-hmm. It can sound like a creaking door or a sort of electrical buzz, depending on how high the frequency is, if how close they are to you. The dolphin sonar, you know, they can get a unbelievably detailed picture of something. They can tell whether a a ball bearing is made of copper or aluminum at uh, 100 feet away with their sonar. I mean, it's this unbelievably evolved system that we could never, ever replicate, uh, even though we've tried. And so it's really ultrasound, mm-hmm. but you can feel a little bit in your body when they're close to you, not so much when they're further away. You can hear it when they're further away, though, and they're checking you out. Boy, that's really interesting. A hundred feet away, they can tell the difference in substances. I mean, that would be. I, I'm I I have to check double check that figure, but mm-hmm. they can tell the difference between uh, the the molecular structure of something. Boy, that is yeah. amazing. Now, uh, many of us were first introduced to uh, dolphins by virtue of a movie called The Day of the Dolphin, based on, in part on the life of a very famous researcher, John uh, Lilly. Who was John Lilly, and how did he get into dolphins, and, and 
how do they kind of, I guess, lead him a bit astray? <laughs> oh, wow. How much time do we have here? I mean, Lily is the most fascinating character. He, uh, I, I got so immersed in Lily and his writings and his stories. And I mean, he, he was a neuroscientist who began his career in the 40s. And he, he was also uh, had a physics background. He had a psychology background. He was a commissioned surgeon. He began to work with the military, and he, his specialty was, was neuroscience. He was fascinated by the brain. And even as a kid, he, as a kid, as a teenager, he watched his own mother's brain surgery. And he was a, raised Catholic and constantly asking the big questions in church, like, what is the nature of the mind? One of his uh, high school newspaper articles posed the question, how can the mind be subject? how can the mind be rendered subjective enough to study itself? And so these are the kind of things that he was rolling around when he was a kid. So he got into the military in the 50s, you know, the Cold War era, and that then went into the 60s and into the sort of psychedelic era. And for Lily, the Cold War era and the psychedelic era really defined the the trajectory that his career took. He started off with horrible vivisection experiments in the 50s on rats and monkeys and cats. And his goal was to take electrodes and prod a certain point of their brain and be able to know what was going to happen. Like if you poke here, the person will roll their eyes back and forth or the animal will roll their eyes back and forth. If you poke over here, it's it's the pleasure center. And he thought he could map the brain that way by by jabbing something and then watching what happened to the physical being. So unfortunately, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't obviously work on humans in this way. When he saw a dolphin brain, he went, that's what I need to have right now. He really just had found his grail. And he um, was able to get access to bottlenose dolphins through this um, this place called Marine Studios, which was a, a big, interesting uh, aquarium slash uh, film set. It was a, an oceanic film set that, that had been built so that they could film underwater movies without ever having to get wet. So it was this giant tank that replicated the ocean with 200 portholes where cameras could be situated. And it, it had a research lab attached to it. And, and dolphins were sort of new and exotic. And scientists all over the world wanted to come to this lab and watch the dolphins and study the dolphins. So Lily went there with seven other neuroscientists and were given five dolphins to experiment with and almost instantly killed all five of the dolphins because they didn't realize that you can't anesthetize a dolphin. They're, they're voluntary breathers, you know, as that's, opposed to us. That's a really interesting fact about them. Right. I mean, it makes perfect sense. They're, mm-hmm. they're air-breathing mammals who live underwater. So if a dolphin is ever unconscious, he'll die because mm-hmm. he and, and dolphins, that's why they raise each other to the surface. Any dolphin that's injured, you'll see dolphins getting underneath that animal to, to push them to the surface so they can breathe. And when a dolphin is born, too, there's a guiding of them to the surface. Um, a lot of people think that's why the dolphins have such a tendency to, toward rescuing people who are in trouble because they recognize that that whole deal, that if you're in trouble underwater, you're going to drown. Wow, how interesting. But so Lily and his cohorts finally figured this out, and 
and Lily went back a couple years later with a new uh, method for hammering steel sleeves into the skull and without without sedation. And he had actually tried it on himself to make sure that it didn't hurt that much, which I think I'd want to leave that that ter- determination up to the dolphin. But um, he claimed it, it didn't hurt. So he started hammering steel sleeves into dolphins and he killed a few more, but not before figuring out some things about dolphins. And one of the things that he had figured out was he found a pleasure spot in the dolphin's brain and he could make the dolphin express, it seemed like to him, pleasure. So he built a little switch. So he wanted to see if the dolphin would learn to press the switch to give itself a kind of a reward. And he wrote, he was absolutely stunned to see how closely the dolphin was watching what he was doing. And he Far from having to be taught how to to use this switch, the dolphin started to press the switch even before it was the wiring was done, and eventually broke it. He pressed it so much, and then after it was fixed, began pressing it again and actually killed himself with pleasure. Had basically sent himself into a grand mal seizure of um, the motor cortex, I guess. So Lily was absolutely in captivated by the fact that the dolphin, when he was having these pleasurable sensations, was having also was this giant outburst of communication, all kinds of squawks, you know, barks, whistles, you know, exuberant expressions of himself. And so he started playing back the tapes of the dolphin, slowing them down because they communicated higher frequencies and much faster than we do. And came to the conclusion that the dolphin was emulating the laughter of the people in the lab and emulating some of the things that they had said. And he just stopped in his tracks. He couldn't believe it. And so if you fa- then you fast forward uh, three years. Lily has managed to get funding from basically every major federal institution to buy oceanfront property in the U.S. Virgin Islands and create all these buildings uh, and dolphin labs with the goal of trying to get dolphins to speak English. And, I mean, this was NASA. NASA was in in here. They wanted to learn to communicate with intelligent aliens, and Lily had made all these bold statements, like, of course we'll be communicating with intelligent aliens, and the dolphins will tell us about space, and it will. it's only a matter of years before we will be talking to all these different aliens, and this is where it's all going to be, you know, studied right here, and it was called the Communication Research Institute. And I just love the stories of that place. You know, Aldous Huxley came by, and Richard Feynman, and Carl Sagan was a regular. And some of the some of the most fascinating minds of that era congregated around this wild dolphin lab in in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Lily went a little bit too far, and he alienated himself from the scientific. Ex- establishment once he entered his psychedelic era. But I think it's important to note one of the things that he was very interested in was ketamine, which kind of annihilates your boundaries of your sense of self That's and uh, makes you, I guess, more of a communal animal, not unlike the dolphins he studied. That's what he was after. And so he had, in the 60s, of course, he had also invented, and he was a really creative, inventive guy. He invented the sensory deprivation tank, the flotation tank. and uh, Altered states. Yes. So that's the second movie that was made about Lily. So that, to him, was the way, if, if he could take, first it was LSD, 
Um, which, of course, it's not really surprising that a neuroscientist would want to experiment with mind-altering chemicals. But Lilly wanted to take it floating in this tank so that he could more, you know, more approximate what it would be like to be a sentient, intelligent mind just floating in the water. And he would have dolphin sounds piped in. Uh, so he did a lot with LSD, and he gave it to the dolphins, which didn't earn him a lot of fans in the scientific establishment, among other things. That was one of the experiments that brought him some notoriety. But then when he found ketamine, which he referred to as vitamin K, you know, he was, I think ketamine was a faster acting, almost more intense experience where you're just vaulted out of your body for this short burst of time. And uh, it's addictive. And I, I feel as though ketamine was probably the beginning of his end. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I know people who've taken a lot of LSD and who've maintained real lucidity and intelligence you know, throughout decades. Uh, but I don't think ketamine is a viable long-term study drug for anybody. It, it sounds, it sounds like as though by the end of his life, he had pretty much lost the plot. Now, uh, from here... I- in our history of dolphins, uh, we move to the part, point of where, uh, as Americans, we discover, hey, people are interested in dolphins. There's Flipper. He's on TV. Everybody loves Flipper. Um, all of a sudden, uh, we get the phenomena of the ocean park. Uh, these are not happy places, and you're not a big fan of them, are you? The way we currently have things set up, the the parks are not a happy place for animals that are communal, family-oriented, extremely tight-knit clans that hunt cooperatively, that roam 70, 80 miles throughout the ocean as part of their biology. Mm -hmm. So regardless of what your opinion is on captivity, that's a biological creature that can never have its full, fully expressed life in any sort of tank. And particularly a sterile swimming pool type situation. In in the beginning, um, I mentioned Marine Studios. There was a sense of, I think there was a sense of more wonder and, and more um, interest in the, the real natural history of the animals. Uh, now it's all about this, this sort of circus show. Um, and I'm a, I'm a fan of aquariums, like the Monterey Bay Aquarium, I think is just top notch. But you're never going to see a dolphin show at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And there's a reason for that. At one point, you visited some place called Ocean World Adventure Park, where uh, the dolphins were exposed to music and and noise pollution. And this is, I think, a a really interesting theme in your book about the way that dolphins experience all the noise that we produce underwater. It's amazing. I never knew how much noise we made underwater. Yeah, noise, industrial noise in in the... Well, first of all, dolphins... They live and die by their acoustic senses. I mean, their hearing is just exquisitely uh, attuned to everything. And that makes sense when you consider their environment because they have great vision, actually, and they can work their vision just as well above the water as below the water, and they can even operate their eyes independently. But their real, you know, the real live-or-die sense for a dolphin is its is its acoustic senses. Um, the, so- the sonar... Uh, is what enables them to live in an environment where there's very little light. So they they are, you know, they're at depth. The, uh, we are starting with 
something that isn't that loud but is a constant droning backdrop. There are ships, you know, ships rumble by. At, it, like imagine having a chugging air compressor strapped to your head. That's that's what it's like in the ocean with ships for noise-sensitive animals. But then all the way up to the Navy's combat sonar, which they're deploying a lot more often. They're training a lot more hours with this sonar, is uh, 236 decibels, which is would instantly cause death on land and is would you know 220 decibels will blow a cow off its feet on land so that sonar has been proven to kill dolphins and whales particularly the animals that live in the deeper waters certain dolphin species don't come into shore very often they're more you know adapted to deep diving and living pelagically and those animals when they're startled by this sonar can rocket to the surface. And even though they're adapted to deep diving and they don't need to decompress the way we do, they can still get the the equivalent of the bends. And, you know, that's when you'll find them on the beach with their eyes bleeding or, you know, a brain hemorrhage. So there's a clear scientifically proven connection between this, this loud sonar deployment and strandings and beachings of dolphins. And even if it doesn't kill them, it can deafen them, which is a you know, a slower death because a deaf dolphin is pretty much a dead dolphin. Whales as well. And then the loudest noise uh, at 250 decibels or 260 decibels, uh, which approaches the loudest sound that we can physically make, is uh, are the air gun arrays that are used for, for oil and gas prospecting on the seafloor. And there are increasing surveys like that as we get ready to drill more and mine more into the seafloor. Those air gun arrays have been proven to even destroy commercial fisheries. Um, I mean, they are just explosions that go off straight down the water column. You know, every three seconds, uh, there are dozens of these cannons going off, and they will tow them along a sort of a grid pattern. And any animal that's below them is just going to be absolutely poleaxed by this battering wall of sound. They've found that larva doesn't develop properly after this is deployed. Of course, it makes animals just flee from any place they're feeding the, 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 where they do this. So it's a serious, serious problem, the noise in the ocean. Now, to, to contrast what, what happens with in the ocean parks, you talk about something, and, and I couldn't even believe it was true when I first uh, read about it, was uh, Fungi the Dingle mm-hmm. Dolphin. And, and I love this story. And you actually have a photograph of Fungi, and you saw Fungi, didn't you? You see Fungi or your money back. <laughs> I mean, right. like, but this is a wild dolphin. And I had read about Fungi. Fungi lives in a, a not very uh, deep, not very exciting, pretty placid, um, basically harbor bay in uh, Dingle, Ireland, which is part of County Kerry, beautiful part of Ireland, but a, sort of a little fishing town, um, not known for a particularly pristine harbor. And here is a bottlenose dolphin, a male bottlenose dolphin, who's been in this harbor by himself for 38 years and counting. Fungi has his own Twitter feed. He, you know, when I first heard about him and saw the pictures, and, and he has his own Facebook page, I really didn't think it was possible. So, so I went to Ireland, and sure enough, Fungi is there every single day. He is a he's not 
in any way fed or enticed. He hunts for his own food. He He's an exemplar of a weird thing that dolphins occasionally do, which is break off from their pods and decide that they want to seek human society instead. And this is so interesting because, I mean, this is a social animal that has decided to bond with humans. And that that suggests that this is uh, something that's a lot more intelligent and has a lot more going on in ways that we even can't even conceive of. Yeah. I mean, there's fascinating facts. For one thing, this it's often bottlenoses that do this. But you're right. At the dolphin's most important feature of a dolphin's life is usually other dolphins. Mm-hmm. So what's going on in the mind of an animal that like eschews that to come hang out with people instead? But what's even more interesting to ask is this: uh, they call scientists call them sociable solitary dolphins. Um, their numbers are rising all over the world in in various species, not just bottlenoses. There have been solitary orcas um, seeking human companionship, and all kinds of different dolphin species. Beluga whales do it a lot. I'm guessing that Joan Ocean has not, <laughs> and her people have an answer for this now. Yeah, I mean, I they the, the I don't as far as I know, every so often you'll see a, a mixed species pod in mm-hmm. Hawaii. Um and really? we don't know why they do that either. Yeah, I mean, one day I was swimming with spinners over there and two spotted dolphins came by and I've been swimming with spinners when pilot whales came by and the scientist that I spent a lot of time with over there told me that he has seen um spinners once a, a lone spinner that was part of a pilot whale pod and I mean, what's going on there and there? We don't know. We really don't know. But they are as distinct little societies and cultures as ours are. You talked about uh, John Lilly and his neuroscience studies. That was primitive times for human neuroscience as well. We're much more modern now. We have MRIs taking on the dolphins, don't we? Yeah. Lori Marino is is one of my favorite characters in the book and just an incredibly brilliant woman. She's um, a... neuroscientist who decided to study the cetacean brain as opposed to the primate brain. And most neuroscientists will track in the direction of primates because, of course, that's has more in common with our brains. Uh, the cetacean brain is constructed completely differently. And that those differences were what drew Marino to study the brain, uh, that particular brain. It has a very differently constructed neocortex. It's far, far more ancient than our brains. Um, dolphins have had their big brains for about 35 million years. We've had ours between somewhere between 800,000 to 200,000 years. Uh, so they've had a lot of time to get their design down. And it's convergent evolution because they did this in the ocean. So we have both arrived at the same destination, which is you know being highly intelligent mammals, through completely different itineraries, carrying completely different luggage. Now, one of the things that interested me about um, the dolphin brain was the the limbic system. I guess that it's giant and weird. They have an extra lobe uh, in the paralimbic region that we don't know what they do with it, but it, it it's literally so packed with elaborated tissue that it just blurped out an extra lobe. And and the way she, Lori Marino described it to me was it's just horals and curlicues. And it's like it's a, it's just this exuberance of limbic system. Um, and she said it basically indicates that 
because, of course, the limbic system is the seat of emotions and intuition. And it suggests that they're, these animals are doing something very sophisticated when they're processing their emotions. And it may even be a type of emotional awareness or intelligence that we don't have. Now, uh, too, the limbic system is how we determine where our body ends, that the proprioception, uh, proprioception it, it come, that's part of the limbic system. And so it's to me, this suggests that perhaps that the dolphins, that their, ability, their communal inclination comes from this increased uh, limbic node in their brain. Yeah, it that this limbic system indicates that they could be have an enhanced level of sociality that is difficult for us to understand because we uh, think of ourselves as very discrete individuals. This is one of the most fascinating things that I learned f from studying the science of the dolphin brain is that there are some things that we can't explain about dolphins. One of them is, why do they strand en masse when only one animal or two animals might be sick? Why, in, in, a, in a situation where they're in jeopardy, like, say, the cove in Taiji, they could jump those nets so easily, and yet they don't. Why don't they? So that's a real conundrum. This area of the brain points in the direction that there may be something going on differently with dolphins they don't think like, I'm going to save myself, because the idea of self translates outside the perimeter of their own bodies into the other animals that are around them. That This has been called the communal self. Mm -hmm. And the way I wrote about it was, as far as I could understand it, it's like a level beyond empathy. Instead of just, you know, I care about you, it's that it's, I somehow am part of you. And then if you think, if you take that one step further that begins to track more in line with what we know from quantum physics is actually true mm -hmm. in, the, in the nature of reality. So that, to me, was a very interesting area of inquiry. Um, of course, I don't know how you ever prove this um, hypothesis or... We don't know how to prove it yet, but... We... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> mean, if we stick around for 35 million years with our big brains and we manage not to destroy ourselves and not to destroy the place that we live, you can imagine that we might become more communal as well in order <laughs> to make it work. One might hope that to um, be the case. Yeah. Now, you, you also mentioned to me that uh, dolphins are among the species that they make out. This oh, yeah. Is, That's a is... very big part of dolphin life. They're highly sexed creatures. They don't seem to differentiate between us and them. You know, if you're in the water with a, a bottlenose dolphin in particular, that species, um, you know, there's a chance that dolphin will come on to you. Uh, certainly, it's been done in the past. And uh, the, uh, the bonding among dolphins has a lot to do with sex. They're constantly touching when you see them in the water. Um, yeah, it seems to be some sort of way that they express their, their bonds with each other. You mentioned uh, Taiji. This is the place um, in uh, immortalized, unfortunately, in a movie called The Cove. I, when This is a movie, when I first saw it, I kind of looked at about 10 seconds of it and, and saw it. This is a, said, this movie is about a place where people think it's okay to slaughter dolphins. That's a movie I probably, that's about as much as I need to know about that. I, but in your book, you bring out something that I didn't know and I think is pertinent and interesting, that this is a place where 
the dolphins in captivity have come to, and there's a big black market. There's big money in captive dolphins. Yeah, uh, I went to Taiji with the uh, with the main character from the cove, Rico Berry, because I wanted to see what, and with a lot of volunteers that had been. Uh, an activist that had been spurred to go there after seeing the cove to see what impact the movie may have had on this this little town in Japan. Uh, it's a really small town. It's a fishing town that claims they have a traditional hunt in dolphins, but they in fact do not. the The dolphin hunt started uh, in 1969. They have a whale hunting tradition that goes back much further, but the dolphin hunting is purely mercenary. It's not traditional at all. They kill a lot of dolphins, and they are also, this little town uh, serves as a locus of a major trade in wild uh, wild dolphins for marine parks. They're shipped, Taiji dolphins are shipped all over the world. There have been Taiji dolphins in the U.S. Um, there are lots of marine parks in Japan, lots in China and growing, the Middle East, Russia, Korea. Taiji is a one-stop shopping destination for anybody who would like to buy a dolphin and who is untroubled by the process of plucking that dolphin out of a pool of blood that contains the bodies of its entire family. So it's a pretty dark place. And going there is um, a really disturbing experience. One of the reasons why they are also killing so many dolphins is they believe that, that the dolphins eat too many fish which is absurd. That's not how the ocean works. You know, what makes the ocean productive is a fully functioning ecosystem. So I I don't understand it. It still goes on. They're capturing uh, fewer dolphins. They're killing fewer dolphins and selling uh, plenty of dolphins. And at a certain point, what will happen in Taiji is what has happened in other dolphin hunting villages in Japan, and that is that they will wipe out the local population of dolphins. Um, the the Kuroshio Current runs really close to Japan at that point, which is like our Gulf Stream. And so they're able to get a lot of the dolphin species that are, would normally be further offshore. So they can wipe out very quickly a population of, say, false killer whales, which are not as numerous as some of the other species. Uh, and, you know, Japan is, at this point... Um, still a, a real problem in terms of the dolphin situation. And there's another place that you call the end of the world, the the Solomon Islands, where you meet a man named uh, Chris Porter. Well, Chris Porter, uh, I went to the Solomon Islands because I had heard about Chris Porter, who had been called the Darth Vader of dolphins. And he was a Canadian dolphin trainer who went down to this this pretty remote country, actually not pretty remote, extremely remote country, off the coast of New Guinea. And the Solomon Islands in uh, about the year 2000 was in the middle of a civil war that was really violent. And um, the government was, they were on the verge of becoming a failed state. And uh, they had a traditional dolphin hunt where they, some of the remote villages would kill dolphins by the hundreds. Sometimes they could even kill a thousand in a single day and pry out their teeth. They ate them, but but they also would pry out their teeth, and the dolphin teeth were a currency in that country. So in order to buy a bride, if I'm a rural tribesman, I need at least a, do- a thousand dolphin teeth. But the more dolphin teeth a family has, the higher its social status, and you can use them to buy and trade pigs and cigarettes and, you know, adorn your, your jewelry and make lampshades. I mean, it just... 
that actually was a traditional hunt. It's like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like for, something I, you yeah. couldn't make up. Um, they, so this this country is pretty rough. It's one of the rougher places on earth. And, and you Chris, were there. To I did. I went. Life and limb. It was an intense trip, and I went after I heard that this one village had killed a thousand dolphins in a single day. People in the conservation movement have been trying to convince these villages to stop hunting dolphins, and they've been trying, in fact, to like entice them by saying, we'll build you a school on your... These are really rural islands. I mean, and when you see them, they're being really swallowed up by sea level rise. So they're, you know, they're pretty desperate. But they're also, they're also really mercenary, the, the people that are doing this. And so they've been... They had uh, taken some money from one environmental group, and then when they, when they didn't account for it, the group decided not to renew the deal, and they went out and killed a 1,000 dolphins, and they said they were just resuming their traditional hunt, but there was a lot of heat and noise around this that made the international press um, in Japan and, and, excuse me, in Australia and New Zealand, and somehow I caught wind of that and went down there. But I had been following the story longer because of Chris Porter, Mm -hmm. who had gone in sort of cold to this war-torn, you know, country full, full of people who are slaughtering dolphins for their teeth and try to convince them to sell them live instead. So to put it mildly, this situation became really inflamed. And uh, I had seen a documentary that was done in Canada about what happened when he arrived and a documentary that was also done by Al Jazeera about this. And it was just like, it was like lighting a match to Tinder. And things didn't go well for Porter. Um, He's now back in Canada. I met up with him later he's sort of feels remorse and is trying to make amends for his his doings in the Solomons and his role in dolphin trafficking but it's this hanging out with dolphin traffickers in the middle of you know these countries that are really uh you know very difficult places to be it took a real toll I mean the reporting for this book was emotionally difficult at times it struck me too uh, exactly that that just seemed pretty scary and terrifying and your meeting with uh Porter was I think it was really beautifully written because you do a great job at conveying his diffidence and his kind of sketchiness uh, you you know you read that he sa- sounds remorseful maybe maybe not where's the money yeah, I mean, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt because, you know, but at the same time, time will tell. Yeah. Uh, time will tell. Uh, he's trying to create a virtual reality situation with dolphins, and he is particularly drawn to orcas, So he's he's and he lives in British Columbia, so he is working on a project called Ocean Walls where kids would see three-dimensional virtual reality images of orcas, and that would be an alternative to captivity. And I wish him well with that. It caused a lot of havoc um, and sold 83 dolphins into captivity. But, you know, some of the other activists, including Rick O'Berry, had begun their lives as dolphin captivity um, collectors. And being around the dolphins taught them that this was not the way to, to be around these animals. It was wrong. Well, as you learned, dolphins offer... The presence of a dolphin, when you are with a dolphin, you realize that there's not a what on the other side of those eyes. There's a who. Literally, because not just because they're self-aware enough to recognize themselves in mirrors, 
but because dolphins have signature whistles that are akin to names and they're given to them as when they're born just after they're born the same way we will do with with babies um they're christened with sonar yeah well they they're given their their own little whistle and they will keep that whistle throughout their entire lives it's who they are uh they use it to announce themselves. Uh, they call other dolphins whistles to call them. And they have also, uh, scientists have now have shown that two dolphins that were close, that were friends or family, if they're separated by as many as even 20 years, they recognize one another's signature whistles. And I mean, when you think about that, it's just, it's both charming and heartbreaking to think about taking a dolphin out of its pod and, you know, sticking in with a group of random other dolphins in a swimming pool. It's the same as, you know, walking along at the mall and having your kid plucked out and taken, put in a closet for the rest of his life. I, I mean, the analogy couldn't be more direct. Uh, there's also uh, the science of dolphins is moving fast. And you were telling me earlier that there's uh, some new science that just came out, what, a couple weeks ago, was it? Oh, yeah. So I don't uh, I read the paper a couple of weeks ago. I didn't have this detail when I wrote the book, but I had written about dolphins wound healing abilities. Um, there was a there's this beautifully named journal called the investigative the Journal of Investigative Dermatology, which I just have to say, <laughs> I love that. But some um, one of the scientists wrote a letter uh, asking other scientists, we should study dolphin wound healing abilities more closely because if you take a chunk of flesh, even the size of a basketball out of a dolphin, the dolphin won't show any pain. He won't hemorrhage out. He won't get in, the wound will not become infected, even though ocean water is just, you know, a swirl with viruses and bacteria. And then there, when the tissue is uh, healed, it will have no deformity, no scarring. So it's more like regeneration than repair. So that had been observed, and that I wrote about in the book. But what I read recently was that now they think that the reason that they're able to do this kind of regeneration of body tissue is because they the tissues can actually, the dolphins within their own bodies can create the stem cells they need and build it back internally. And they also believe that dolphin tissue may have a natural derivative of morphine in it and that the dolphins are possibly in the ocean extracting antibiotics and antimicrobial compounds from undersea plants and storing it in their bodies for when they need it. And this is, of course, a really brand new kind of area of inquiry, but there's something really amazing about how dolphins are able to heal themselves. Um, there's many things very amazing about that. Well, you also mentioned in the book uh, kind of epigenetics that uh, that they perform. They're able to uh, stop their own type 2 diabetes. Yeah. I mean, their evolution, dolphins began their evolution on land 95 million years ago. They were small hooved wolves. And at some point around... That's bizarre. I know. Isn't that bizarre? <laughs> That's A hooved really wolf. And I, I had to ask three or four scientists... I'd read various things, um, and I finally got a picture of, of that, that at some point around uh, 55 million years, the, that animal was fully aquatic. So during that time, they became fully aquatic. And at first, when they were fully aquatic, they were large predators. They had big fang-like teeth and giant bodies. And, and then they, they became smaller. Their body 
became smaller, their teeth became smaller, they became more communal, and their brains grew larger at that point, which was about 35 million years ago. And that's weird in itself, because typically you would imagine if the body grew smaller, the brain would also grow smaller. Uh, But that didn't happen with dolphins. Um, So they've evolved on this sort of crazy, colorful odyssey of shape-shifting. I mean, it's like as if we suddenly sprouted wings or learned to see out our ears or something like that and, (laughs) you know, just decided to live in the air. I mean, they've done, they've just done, they've been very intrepid evolvers. So their brains have had a chance to really adapt beautifully in, in ways that, you know, our new brain, our new brains haven't even begun, really. Uh, We have 35 million years of catching up to do. Well, the, when you describe the way they heal themselves, that to me sounds like what some science fiction writer might describe as um, advanced transhuman self-healing uh, DNA uh, hacking available to us maybe 200 years in the future. Yeah, or imagine if you could give yourself a squirt of morphine from within when you were hurt. Yeah. I'll and- take that. <laughs> <laughs> Non-addictive. Yeah. For all the future that the dolphins embody, you end the book in the past. And I thought that was a, a beautiful coda to the book. Where did you go and why did you go there? Well, I this was I went to Greece. And I went there because I had set out to look for the oldest dolphin art. So the book examines the human-dolphin relationship from every which angle. And I wanted to know who first, which primitive you know, prehistoric artist first drew a dolphin or painted a dolphin or carved a dolphin. And the earliest uh, artworks that I could find came from a civilization known as the Minoans. And the more I learned about the Minoans, the more incredibly obsessed I became with them. And not only did they paint one or two dolphin artworks, they have thousands of dolphin artworks uh, that are lyrical and beautiful and anything but crude or primitive even though they lived um, as long ago as, uh, you know, the earliest dolphin artwork that I looked at was 3000 BC. So, you know, 5000 years ago, uh, they had very advanced civilizations, beautiful palatial buildings. uh, And and they've left behind this trove of artworks, many of which herald and celebrate the ocean, and all of which celebrate this harmony with nature that their culture seems to have had as its hallmark. No no coins. You use no money. Interesting. No images of war. Sounds like a utopia. I, I have to say I would do anything for a glimpse at a Minoan um day in the life. Uh now they mysteriously disappeared, this whole culture. Um they were thought to have been snuffed out by a volcanic eruption around fifteen hundred BC that some people believe was the um, inspiration for Plato's mythical Atlantis. That happened on Santorini, um, which was a round island, and they had a, such a huge volcanic eruption there that it would have been about four times the size of Krakatoa. For sure, the most violent um, geophysical disaster that we know of. You know, Obviously, meteors have struck much further back than that, but... That would have it basically imploded all of Santorini and buried uh, a lot of Minoan cities, and some of them are likely on the bottom of the ocean. But interestingly enough, I went to Akrotiri, um, which is like a Minoan Sydney or San Francisco, right at the water's edge. 
a lot of the artworks were perfectly preserved by the volcanic ash, but there were no human remains found, um, which, if you think about it, is pretty bizarre. That is odd, because in Pompeii, there are plenty. Oh, plenty, you know, caught in with the fork halfway to the mouth and stuff like that. There was obviously forewarning or some other mechanism, but they were gone. Um, But the art, what we have to sort of piece together their very mysterious past is uh, this body of artwork and architecture that's just stunning. And it, along with dolphins and a lot of marine creatures and a lot of plants and flowers and bees and um, they, you know, they showed a people that were really aquatic. They were a thalassocracy. There's one mural that's rendered so beautifully that shows them in boats that appear to have hydroplanes under their um, under their bows, which, you know, they're, they're rendered in such detail that historians have found really interesting detail in them, things that you wouldn't have thought that they could possibly have had access to that long ago. And in the, the palaces and cities that we have been fortunate enough to excavate, there's hydraulics and plumbing Mm -hmm. and, you know, very cantilevered architecture with large stones, the kind of mysteries that make you really wonder what was going on back then. But no images of, um, of like spearing animals, no images of war, no images of women being dragged away by their hair like the classical Greeks, you know, specialized in. There was something else there instead. And there's this sweetness to it that is really captivating. And I, I think that this um, vision of from the past, I think, leads us right back to where you began swimming with the dolphins in the ocean, a communal experience between uh, humankind and the aliens on Earth and the aliens that we are to one another, in a sense, because we are more separated from ourselves. I'm more separate from you than any other two dolphins might be. Yes, and also I feel as though where we are right now, uh, humanity, is we've separated ourselves from nature, and yet, you know, we're part of nature. So that can't end well. Um, (laughs) That just, it can't end well. So that coming back together, um, that somehow managing to be see nature as part of us rather than, you know, owned by us or governed by us is, to me, the way that we'll make it for another 55 million years. I've been speaking with Susan Casey. Her new book is Voices in the Ocean, A Journey into the Wild and Haunting World of Dolphins. Thank you for joining me, Susan. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.